1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, is it Jaws? You like that, huh? Nice ride. Thanks. How much? Excuse me? How much for the car? She's not for sale. You have a good day, sir. Daisy! I lost everything. That dog was a final gift from my dying wife. Jonathan, you got out once. You dip so much as a pinky back into this pond, you may find something reaching out to pull you back in. It's personal. Where'd you get that car? What does it matter? It's not what you did, son. It's who you did it to. The nobody? That nobody. No, just sorting some stuff out. Task your crew. How many? As many as you have. Hey, John. I thought I'd let myself in. People keep asking if I'm back. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. I'm not afraid of John Wick. Uh-huh. How good's your laundry? No one's that good. I thought not. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and this time out, I am welcoming back my buddy, 
Sir Andrew Leyland. <laughs> King of the North. <laughs> well, where where exactly are you? Are you north, south, east, or west in uh, England? But technically, we are in the northwest of England. Okay. So I'm I'm over by Manchester and Liverpool and Blackpool. If you look on a map. In between Blackpool and Preston and Manchester and Liverpool, I'm more or less spot in the middle. And if I remember right from previous conversations, you're probably about a three-hour drive from London? Well, yeah, on a good day. Two hours on a train. Because if I ever find myself in England, that's probably where I would end up. And I would be saying, I don't care, drive the three hours. I'll anyway. jump on a train. <laughs> it's easier to come on the train, honest. The train station is from London is right in our town. All right, even better. So I'll, I'll start planning that. All right. When we can eventually travel again, obviously. Yes. And, uh, well, we'll get there eventually. But for now, we are covering a movie that we have long talked about covering. Mm. If, if I remember correctly, you saw this in the movies, did you? didn't you? I did not. No, did not. We, we no. We saw this purely because Angela's a big Keanu Reeves fan. Okay, so then you probably saw it around. This opened in 2014. Uh, actually, I'm, I don't have the movie open. I have. There's a comic. I didn't know there was a comic. Um, yeah, I think. So. Is it? It's not one of those tedious origin, though, is it? I have no idea. I just I, uh, I, had, a Wiki, okay. I had the Wikipedia page opened, and it was on the comic. But now it's over to the movie. And so it opened on September 19th, 2014. Uh, and then, then in wide release on October 24th, 2014. So if you saw it on video, you must have seen it sometime probably early in 2015. Yeah, that sounds about right. And if my memory is close to accurate, sometime not too long after you saw it, you started talking to me about it and, t and recommending yes. it to me. Yep. And as much as I respect your recommendations, and I do... It took me until last night before I watched it. <laughs> before you actually got round to it. Well, that, that's that's fair enough, because that's how John Wick got where it is. It is, in my opinion, this is the doyen of action movies. This has surpassed Die Hard for me as the best action movie ever made. Really? Interesting. <laughs> I would not go that far. Uh, I enjoyed this movie, don't get me wrong. But it, it doesn't have it's it's definitely much darker than Die Hard. Mm. Uh, you know, we'll we'll start start right off with the fact that I don't consider myself to be soft, <laughs> but I have a very soft spot when you start dealing with uh, violence in movies towards children and animals. Yep. yep. Well, that's that's the, I think the thing of it is. Like Die Hard, this came out of nowhere. It got no pre-publicity. It got no hype. It wasn't plastered all over the the film magazines. This has just started principal photography. No one was taking on-set sneaky photos of it and splattering them all over social media. It just appeared. And I think like with Die Hard, or certainly for me with Die Hard... To actually get something nowadays that just appears and and just bowls you over with how good it is and how entertaining it is, is very, very rare. Nowadays, the hype machine kicks in almost before the film's even started filming 
which can often be somewhere in the region of 18 months to two years before it actually comes out. So to actually just put a film in and be gobsmacked by it from almost from beginning to end is genuinely a treat and genuinely a surprise nowadays. I would agree. Uh, and I would say it certainly since it took me whatever it is, almost six years to watch it. Uh, <laughs> it's not like I was, uh, you know, forced into the room to, to sit down and see this one. But uh, and I enjoyed it, like I said. But I feel like Die Hard is a little cleaner. Uh, like I said, this is a very dark movie. I feel like Die Hard, the violence is more cartoony uh, to the extent that people who have a sensitivity to violence are probably not going to be as bothered by watching that movie as they are by watching this one. Oh, no, but it's it's full on. It, it's quite an adult movie. And for the first 10 minutes or so, you're watching it going, what have I got myself into here? Is this going to be Keanu Reeves moping about his dead wife for two hours? And then the minute Alfie Allen comes into it and eyes up his Ford Mustang, you you suddenly get the feeling of where it's going to go. Because Alfie Allen always plays a twat in everything that he's in. He plays a scumbag. So when Alfie Allen strones on, you're kind of like, oh, OK. But it really does pivot from the minute that they shoot the dog. Because oh, yes. what I what I think the film really does exceptionally well is exploring john wick's grief over the death of his wife and what the film does really well is it takes his wife away from him in a way that he has no control over that he's done all of these bad things he's been pretty much a bad man his entire life judging by the backstory that you piece together as you go through the film and then she's taken away from him by cancer she's taken away from him not by anything that he could have any control over and then Alfie Allen comes in and completely disrupts his life and shoots the one thing that his wife has left behind for him, which is the dog that she has sent him post death. She's obviously arranged for this to be delivered to him after she died, because obviously they knew she was going to die. And that is something he has a control over. That is something that he can get his teeth into and this entire film is him expunging his grief over the death of his wife. Alfie Allen just got unlucky. That oh, no, it's, it's, it's beyond that being, that un, being unlucky, though. I mean, he, he, oh, yeah, yeah. he it, certainly it, asked it, for it. <laughs> yes. Oh, undeniably, Alfie Allen is a completely unlikable scumbag throughout the entire film. Yeah, no question about it. His, from from, hmm. from the first scene, you know, you, you know, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm and waiting all, for this guy kinds, to get it. And if you want to get into it, there's that whole thing that you could talk about at the minute about entitlement. Alfie Allen is, is the poster child for somebody who feels he can get away with whatever the hell he wants to get away with because of his dad, mm -hmm. essentially. But one of, what I love about John Wick more than anything else is, like in the original Star Wars, there is so much backstory to this. It creates an entire world, and it does it effortlessly. There's no bad exposition in this film. As you go along, you're introduced to the Continental, and you're introduced to the idea of paying with the gold sovereigns, and you're introduced to, uh, I need dinner for 12. All these little things that are introduced throughout the entire movie that are just, in the film, are just tossed off 
as everyone in the film knows what they are and you as the audience are just catching up as you go. And I think it does that masterfully. And it's built upon that in the subsequent sequels and the TV show that's going to come down the line as well. And there, there is no, there's, there's no fad on this movie. No, uh, God you know, no. There, there is no wasted exposition. Nope. Uh, it's a lean 97 minutes, which again, in modern movie parlance, is, is pretty much a short film. Yes. Yes, definitely. Uh yeah, I mean, you, you you know where everybody's coming from very quickly. They, their characters are not, they're not so much two-dimensional, but they're not deep either. The only no, one who th- has any real depth to them is Keanu Reeves or John Wick. See, I think that it implies depth. I, You know, you watch this, you want to know more about Ian McShane's character. But that could be just that Ian McShane is brilliant. But the concierge, I love the concierge in this. The guy, that guy's deadpan delivery about um, when he walks in and he says, do we have a dry cleaner on site? And he just looks at which shirt and goes, we don't have anyone that good. <laughs> He's, I just think I just think all of the characters, it, it does it does something really smart, John Wick. It is incredibly dumb and incredibly smart at the same time. Well, I have, I have a question it, for you. Go on. And it's the one question that jumped out at me somewhere about two-thirds of the way through the movie. You have this hotel, the Continental, where yeah. it's a kind of a safe house, effectively. You know, no violence is allowed there. Yeah, it's like Highlander, isn't it? Why didn't... Like Holy Ground why didn't they just Why didn't they just put Alfie Allen there until they could resolve this situation? Because I don't because... think John Wick would have broken that rule. No, John wouldn't have broken that rule, but I get my interpretation of it is that... Um... I'm just looking up his name. Winston wouldn't have, have tolerated that. Winston wouldn't have allowed Alfie Allen in there based on what he's done. And also I get that Alfie Allen isn't part of the club. Mm-hmm. So so there's no... Alfie wouldn't have been allowed in the on that score either. Or, or Isif, Joseph, essentially, is his name, isn't it? Right. So I don't think he would have been allowed entrance into the Continental. It seems very much that it's a private club for people who are in John Wick's business. And Joseph isn't in the business. He is essentially, he's just a, a thug for his dad. Now, the implication is his dad, Michael Nivquist, Vigo, was in the business at some point. Yeah, the implication is that he's risen above that to a higher level now in the, yeah. in the particular business. Now he's now he's a boss where he was once, you know, a, a grunt, so to speak. But, yeah. but obviously he's, the he's continental the is not... Man. And the Continental is not necessarily catering to grunts, so it's somewhere in between that two, those two levels, actually. You know, yeah. More than more than a grunt, less than a boss. Hmm. I think he's kind of like a kingpin level, isn't he? Yes. He, he still is, obeys but... the rules mostly, but then he does put the four million dollar hit on on John Wick if somebody will kill him in the Continental. So I get the impression that the minute he did that any goodwill Winston may have had for him or his son evaporated because he put that contract out and said killing in the Continental is perfectly acceptable. Winston's not going to stomach that. And he doesn't. He takes Adrian Palicki out the back and puts two in ahead. Yeah, that's that's a, almost a surprising scene, even though you even though they laid the groundwork for it, building to it. Mm. Um, one of the disappointments for me watching it was 
I would have wanted to see a little bit more development of the Willem Dafoe character. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The, the problem with it being as lean and fat-free as it is, is some characters are going to fall by the wayside. And there is a lot of, there's a lot there to Willem Dafoe's character, Marcus, because he, he has John Wick in his sights at some point and he doesn't pull the trigger. And he later on argues that, well, you cancelled the contract. And Viggo's like, yeah, but you had time to kill him before I cancelled the contract and you chose not to. Yeah, so I, I would have liked to have seen that get developed just a little further. Yeah, it's like, why is Marcus honourable? It, it because almost you, felt to me like you're wasting an actor of Willem Dafoe's calibre. Ah, but again, see, my thinking is by having Willem Dafoe in that role, you're doing what you're doing with Ian McShane. You're bringing someone who can bring more to it than perhaps is on the page. Yes, I agree with that. But I just feel like it's a terrible waste to not utilize him more in this movie and to give him a little bit more to do. Mm. And that said, <laughs> again, <laughs> this this is a little bit of me picking at nits because I think if you are an action movie fan and you're not particularly squeamish, then this yeah. this movie fits your bill. Yeah, because one of the things I do love about it, I did not like the killing of the dog. Um, the minute that he does that, pretty much the entire audience is killing. But what I like about it is John Wick does not, he doesn't waste any time. He doesn't get into fistfights with these people unless he absolutely has to. He shoots them once in the chest and once in the head. The set piece where Vigo sends his people to attack him in his house is absolutely masterful. Not only in how it's shot, but it's fight choreography as well. You know exactly where everybody is in that scene because they've done such a good job in the earlier scenes of showing him moping around the house after the death of Helen that you know exactly where everything is. There's no need for shaky cam. There's no footsing around replacing the actor with stunt doubles because Keanu pretty much does all of this. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the behind the scenes footage, but the guy throws himself into the training. He learned how to use every single one of those guns. He learned how what the ricochet is on any of the weapons that he's using so he could pray, portray it realistically. And I think when you're looking at it, I think maybe there's one or two stunts he doesn't do. I know he doesn't do the one where he gets thrown out the window for obvious reasons. But that that entire sequence where they come after him in the house is absolutely masterful really yes. well choreographed and they followed that up atomic blonde isn't a great film but there's a sequence in the middle of that that was choreographed by the stunt team that did john wick and you can tell it's an absolutely brilliant sequence and they've just built on that through the sequels i still think the first one is the rawest and the most visceral and the most effective because its storyline is very clear john used to be this guy He's not this guy anymore. Shit goes down. He has to go back to being this guy. And that's basically the plot. It gets a lot more complicated as you get into the sequels. And they're not as good because of that, while still being really, really good. I, I would agree with that. I would say, as far as the action sequences in this movie, of which there are plenty, yep. uh, there is a level of unbelievability to to a lot of it when you're looking at it you're thinking you mean all of these guys shooting 
and not one of them can really hit him in a critical spot. I mean, he gets injured, but it's almost, you know, grazes and flesh wounds and, you know. Well, so, you... Uh, so but, but the way it's – I'm sorry. Let me just – I'll finish the thought no, no, and I'll give on. you your chance to, to – to retort. To, to retort, exactly. Um, it, it, if you sit and you pick it apart, you could say, yeah, that, that's just not possible. You couldn't do this. But it's presented, it's choreographed so well that if you're willing to go along for the ride, you don't have a problem with it. No, because I, I think that's the key. I think the choreography sells it. John Wick uses his environment. So certainly when they're taking him in the house, the fatal mistake there was they took they tried to take him on home ground. He knows his own house. So he knows where to hide and he knows where to move to and he knows what to do. But even in that, there's that brilliant sequence at the end of it where he's, he's wiped everyone out, 12 people in the space of five minutes. And the policeman comes to the door. You alright, John? You alright, Jeremy? Yeah. And it's yeah. absolute, that what's that what's that backstory? Because the cop clearly sees the dead body on the floor and all he says is, You working again? Well Okay, I'll leave you to it. <laughs> and off he goes. Yes. And you know what? That goes exactly the opposite way of what I was saying earlier. I love yeah. I love when the movies make a hypocrite out of me. Yeah. Because I don't want that backstory. I love just having it be untold and you know that there's something there. This cop hmm. was either involved in the business at one time or this cop has a fear of John, but he's made a friendship with him. So he's just hmm. never going to say anything about what he sees because he knows he'd end up dead if he tried. Or John's <laughs> done him a favor at some point in the past. Yeah, there's there's something there. There is a bond there. And I, I, I think that one that I just gave as a possible hypothetical is the least likely because there, there didn't seem to be any level of fear there. Um hmm. You know, it, it seemed totally just like, you know, almost like it almost seemed like, you know, uh, when we were talking about the Looney Tunes cartoons and, uh, you know, morning, Ralph, morning, George, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like just business as usual. Like, you know, uh, and then the cleaning crew comes in and it's it's like, you know, we've, we've all been through this before. Yeah. And, it, and it's all it's all there as well. The, the relationship with John Lagu Laguizamo. I mean, John I Burley too. has a scene with Laguizamo. He's but, great. In it. Yes, because it's him that sells it. It's him when he says, you stole John Wick's car and you killed John Wick's dog. And then he slaps him across the face and he goes running to daddy because Joseph is that kind of person. And when Vigo phones him up and Liguizamo says he killed John Wick's dog and stole John Wick's car. And Vigo just says, oh, and hangs up. That yeah, he's like, he's okay with it. I, I understand know. why you punched yeah. him in the face, and I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, because I'm going to go and do the same. <laughs> and with we, all, of the, all of the wonderful stuff with we don't know exactly how he met Helen, what he did to meet Helen. We find out what the job was that got him out of the business. But that's as much backstory as we need. I don't want John Wick year one. I don't need John Wick Begins. No. No, I don't want John Wick Begins. And maybe, I, I didn't really look, but maybe that's that comic book that we... Yeah, I, I'm not interested. No, I, I don't I, mind that for, like, one film, but I want James Bond to be cool from the get-go. I want him to know everything. I want him to be good at everything. Well, and it's you, the same with John Wick. If you go there, and I still haven't listened to your uh, James Bond, Daniel Craig episode with uh, Tom DJ... Mm. Uh, 
so I haven't gotten there yet. It's still on my my phone though. Uh, the first Daniel Craig James Bond does give us a touch of Bond Begins, but he is already cool and he's already competent. It's just the rest mm. of the world doesn't know it yet. Yeah, he just needs refining. So I didn't mind that. Fact, no, because he did such a good job of it. I enjoyed that very much, actually. Uh, yeah. But if they had, you it know, if, if they had a flashback and they showed him over at uh, Eaton and, uh, you know, graduating and, and his, you know, all of that stuff, I, I didn't want to yeah. see it and, and I didn't need to see it. I don't need to see James Bond in the Navy. Yes, exactly. It's only, I don't it just, need to see I'll that. I'll take Roger Moore in the, in the Navy outfit in, in that, uh, in The Spy Who Loved Me. That's good enough. Yeah, just to know that he rose to the rank of commander in the Navy, that's all you need. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And with John Wick, we don't need to know what his history. We know enough of his history. Yeah, we know everything we need to know. Which is why, which is where it comes into what I say that the film is just as smart and just as dumb. The smart comes in the level of conviction that they're putting into the writing of it. That like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to tell you this completely insane story. We're going to throw these completely insane action sequences at you. We're going to basically have John be run over by a car, fall from a building, and he's going to be fine. And you're going to buy it because of the amount of effort we put into setting it up and selling it to you. Yes. Uh, which brings me to one of the very few other criticisms I'm going to give you on this one. Uh, in the as we get closer to the climax in the big battle scene where they kind of take him out luckily because the car knocks into him hmm. and knocks him down and he passes out. So now they have him. And I felt like it was kind of a cheat to some extent that they didn't just kill him. They had to bring him and tie him up and taunt him. And I just felt like yeah, that see, didn't that... make sense. And that to me, that... That, stu that smelled a little bit to me of the only point in the movie where I feel like the writers said, we want to get to this point and we can't think of a really, truly clever way to do it. So we're going to cheat a little bit and be a little lazy. Yeah, because they had to bring Marcus into it and have Vigo kill him, because once John Wick kills Alfie Allen, the story's over. And, you know, Vigo has no real reason to go back after John at that point because John's beef was with his son and the rules of, of whatever world we're living in are that right, that debt has been paid. You now need to let that go. And, and you Vigo get the distinct impression. The he understood yes, the beef. And, that, and you get the, you get the impression that no one would support Vigo in going after John Wick after that. It's like, look, just let it go. You do not want to bring the wrath of John Wick down on you. Let it go. Uh, but he doesn't. He goes and gets Marcus. But he lets John know that he's gone and got Marcus. So then it becomes another personal thing for John to go and get Vigo. So there is, you can see a little bit of the creaking writing there. Yes, I agree with you. That they need a reason for him to go after Vigo when this is all over. Because what I did like about it is he didn't screw around when he finally found Joseph. He just shot him in the head. And they as didn't he did make with everybody. Joseph, they didn't make Joseph competent enough to have him be the climax of the movie. Yeah, they didn't. There were, there's no reason that he could have pulled up anything kind of a fight so with, you, with John. 
Yeah, so you needed Vigo to be the final hill yeah. to climb in this particular movie. Unless, the only other thing you could have done, and I think it would have been too repetitive with other things that we got in the movie already, but the only other thing I think that you could have had him have to go through some sort of gauntlet to get to him, to kill him, uh, which included you know people of certain competency or whatever. But I kind, of, I kind of felt like that was the whole movie already. Yeah. So if you did that, it's just it's just kind of repetitive. So so making Vigo the final uh, confrontation make, makes a lot of sense. I just think in the writers' room you should have been able to sit down and just come to that conclusion a little better. See, but I I also think that goes into what you were saying earlier on that the reason they cast Willem Dafoe in that role was that he he brings that to it so that when he does get killed at the end, you actually feel something despite his limited screen time. I don't disagree. I don't think you're wrong there. And uh, you know, again, I, I just I feel the need to say because I feel like I'm I'm here being the devil's advocate, giving the negatives and having you explain them away. And I, <laughs> I have to just constantly put the disclaimer there that, but I really enjoyed watching this movie. Yeah, I, that, no, that's fine. That's okay. That's all right because there's so much else to enjoy about it as well. There's the two guys who hang around with Joseph. My favourite being um, Toby, what's his name? Just let me look on IMDb. Toby Leonard Moore, who was Wesley in the Daredevil TV show. Yes. As as Victor. Every time Alfie Allen's Joseph does something stupid, they've got him just stood in the background. It's always beautifully framed. He's stood in the background just rolling his eyes or dropping his head like he spent his entire life bailing this kid out of the many, many stupid things that he's done. And you get that all in his performance. That's never spelt out in any dialogue or anything. And it's never to the forefront of a scene. It's always in the background. Just his reaction to everything Alfie Allen does is, oh, Jesus, here we go again. Except in the beginning when he confronts John Wick and then they go to leave and, and he comes over and says, have a good day, sir, blah, blah, blah. You know, he, he, but even he, though there's a bit there's a bit before that where he just goes, oh, no, but it's the only time where he comes to the forefront and oh, yeah, addresses it directly. And you, you get the impression he's always having to apologize for this guy. Yeah, he's always having to cover for the fact that this guy's a moron. <laughs> I mean, well, Viggo actually says to him, you got out and got the wife and I got out and became this and got the son. You got the better end of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's there's uh, we've not talked about Adrian Palicki as Miss Perkins, a really good role for her. When she, you normally she was almost unrecognizable step. to me. Yeah, with the dark hair. I, I would not if you you know you sh if I didn't see her name in the credits, and you told me you know you showed me her scene and asked me who it was playing the part, I would not have been able to to respond. I wouldn't I would not have been able to tell you who that was. And even though John doesn't kill her in the Continental, he will not break that rule. Even though what she's just done has essentially broke the rules itself. And then she kills, uh, what's it, Henry? Harry? Yeah, Harry. poor Harry. I, I, and I love that as well. When you keep your eye on her, catch and release, catch and release. What the hell's a catch and release? We don't know. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I think, I, I, the way I interpreted that was, you want me to keep her captive until the time, whatever time it is that you're finished with what you're doing and then let her go as yeah. opposed to you'd like me to dispose of her. Yeah. It was basically just keep up to keep an eye on it till I can do what I'm doing because she's going to go and report back to her boss. 
basically. Uh, yeah, it's just po- it's just populated with so many great characters and character bits, just even little minor bits, like when he goes into the Continental Bar and the, the girl behind the bar who clearly knows him and talks about his wife and the doctor. One scene with the doctor tells you everything you need to know about it, because when he says to him, I've stitched you up, you're going to need to rest. You're not going to rest. Take these. <laughs> It'll rip your stitches, but you won't feel it. <laughs> <laughs> And it, that, that one scene with that guy, you know these people have a prior relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to talk for a couple of minutes about Keanu Reeves in general. This he, He's had this ascension, uh, and, and it, it just keeps rising, which shocks me. And hmm. it doesn't shock me because I don't respect him. I do respect him. Uh, I first realized that he had more depth than I thought uh, when I saw him in the movie Parenthood. Yeah. Because he, he brought something to his character in that movie that was beyond what I thought his acting skills were at that point. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had seen him in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and I, and, and, and I thought, you know, yeah, he's, you know, he's a competent kind of, you know, charismatic guy, but I didn't anticipate that he was going to be a really good actor now parenthood was the next movie he came out with so it's not like oh i had a long time between then and you know between the two movies i was unfamiliar with him before that he had you know he had a filmography before that uh and i think i had seen one or two of the movies he was in but i guess his part was pretty pretty small in those because i don't Mm -hmm. actually remember him in anything before bill and ted uh but then I saw him in Parenthood. I really liked him in that. And then Point Break, I really liked. And then Speed. No, <laughs> my we, wife's my wife's favorite film. Speed. Point or, Break. Or Point Break. <laughs> uh, you know, and 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 I, I I felt he was a decent actor. Mm. And I think now there's a feeling from people that he's beyond a decent actor. That he's a very good actor. And I think there's also a little bit of kind of a love affair with him on a personal level. I think all of a sudden people have just, you know, come to the conclusion, right or wrong, and I, you know, I don't know, I've never met the guy, but mm. people have come to the conclusion that he is a genuinely good guy. Yeah. And for that reason, everybody's really starting to, you know, to, to take to him. And it's it's like his his career has had... I was gonna I was gonna use the word resurgence, but I don't think that's accurate because I don't think his career has ever really diminished. But it just keeps it keeps rising in a way that I did not ever anticipate. No, well, there's two things I want to say about the Keanu love train. Uh, that I uh, I'm on the Keanu love train. I think he's a lovely bloke. There's two. There was one interview he gave on um, the BBC radio. Radio 5 film show where he was talking about a documentary he'd made about the preservation of film stock and the preservation of film as an art form. And he was so knowledgeable and so charming and just so delightfully enthusiastic about his subject that you couldn't just be endeared by him. You just you just fell in love with the guy for his enthusiasm. But the second time was a, a spoiler special interview he did on the Empire podcast talking about John Wick, too. And they got to the end of it. And he was he was pleasant and personable throughout the entire interview. But they got to the end of it and they said, well, what's next for John Wick 3? 
And he said, well, we've not written it yet, but we could. And he just threw out this litany of ideas of, of where the sequel could go. He just threw them like bang, bang, bang off the top of his head, which showed me just how invested he is in this character, in this role that he could just. And they didn't end up doing any of those in John Wick 3. But the fact that he got so enthusiastic about where it could go next, that he just comes across as being a really lovable, likable bloke, just a very down to earth guy. But that also says something to me, and I didn't see the interview you're talking about, so I'm working on your description of it here. But that says something to me that, you know, because he started his career in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I think he, and even in Parenthood to some extent, I think he has had a perception from people that he's kind of like a, you know, a very, very uh, superficial, not incredibly smart guy. Uh, and if he's banging out ideas like that just off the top of his head, mm -hmm. he's probably a lot more intelligent than his reputation would have people believe. Yeah. And I, I think, well, when he was talking about that documentary, that's what came across to me about just how smart he was. He, he hadn't just put his name to this documentary. He'd clearly done the legwork. And by all accounts, he does the legwork for everything. Like we said, the stunt training that he does for the John Wick films apparently is off the charts. Yeah, oh, the, the whole Wikipedia page, if you take a look at it, it has uh, descriptions of the various training that people did and the types of martial arts that they were using. And I think that goes to what we were saying earlier about the level of uh, choreography in the fight sequences. Mm. These people, uh, particularly him and I think Adrian Palicki, I think, uh, and actually Vigo, the, the three three main fighters in this movie, I guess, uh, they all went through a, a different level of training for this or a high level of training. And they all, they, they point out, oh, in this scene, I'm using this style and, you know, the, this type of fighting sequence. So it, it shows you how well thought out it is, but it also shows you how much work they put into it. Mm. You know, th this wasn't something that just kind of fell together by chance. This isn't a lucky accident. No, and there's no shaky cam cutting either. Oh, and I'm thankful for that. Yes, uh, the, the yeah, action it, sequences are all really clean. It's well directed and well edited as far as that goes. Uh, mm. You know, the the movie has, I assume it's some kind of a filter that, you know, to create that noir feeling throughout, uh, which is sometimes it's difficult to create that in a non, in, in a color movie. You know, noir, noir lends itself to black and white very, very well. And, and I think by draining some of the color with a filter in this movie, they did create that atmosphere. One thing that I could say, having watched it, I really didn't get a feel for. And since you've seen it multiple times, perhaps you have. Uh, I didn't get a feel for the score. No, no, the, the score is, is quite, it's just, it's very dance music um, club score. Even and some of the action scenes are actually underscored by dance music in a club when right. he goes after Alfie Allen. That's where he is. So yeah, the score, the score, it's not forgettable. It suits the film. It's very similar to Hans Zimmer's score for the Batman movies, in that it suits what you're watching at the time that you're watching it, but it's not really something that stands alone or that you could listen to in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like I said, I didn't. I, I think a good score doesn't necessarily jump out at you. 
No, it suits the film. Yeah, it, it creates an atmosphere that that's going to enhance the scene. Uh, but you, you know, in all likelihood, you're not going to even be conscious of it until a second or a third viewing. Yeah, it's and, it's and not certainly. I was not conscious of it. It, it. I think more often than not, if you, you know, if it's not a musical, yeah. uh, and and you're very conscious of the score in the first viewing of the movie, it's probably not serving its purpose. Some movies that have the best scores I've ever heard: Superman the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, you know, even Jaws, which which all coincidentally are done by the same guy. John Williams. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, those scores, the first time I saw those movies, I was totally oblivious to the score, mm. even though they enhanced the scenes tremendously. But I was so, so just committed to the movie that I wasn't sitting there and paying attention to little to what elements made up the scene. I was taking it all in at once, including the music. So, yeah. you know, I wasn't conscious of it particularly. And like I said, that's some of the best, most memorable music I've ever heard in movies. So though, to me, that's the gold standard. And again, in this movie, I wasn't conscious of it, which doesn't necessarily say, oh, that makes it great. But it does mm. mean it didn't get overly obtrusive, which is, to me, the first sin that you can do with yeah. the score. Yeah, it wasn't in the way it did what it was supposed to, which I suppose is, is what you can say about the score, it being a good score then. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, it uh, you know, suited the film, yeah. You know, the, to me, the, a bad score is one where it's either, like I said, overly obtrusive or it's changing the feeling of a scene in a way that counteracts what the director is trying to do in the scene. So, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not – I don't have an example of that off the top of my head, but I'm sure I've seen it on multiple occasions. Uh, but in, in this case, like I said, at a minimum, it – serves its purpose and maybe if i listen to it more carefully maybe it's even a little better than that uh, yeah. yeah any other aspect of this that we should discuss before we go on to give it our final ratings the cars dude yeah. <laughs> yes you, you gotta love john the, John's the car. 1969 mustang yes mustang is stunningly beautiful um john leguizamo sat on a 1968 dodge charger which i thought he was going to give to John because they give it quite prominence in the scene. So it's kind of unusual that they would give that car that prominence and then not do anything with it. But he doesn't. He ends up giving him a 1970 Chevy Chevelle instead, which works just as well. So and then obviously there's a later era Dodge Charger in as well, isn't there? I, I, I know you're you're you know, you you enjoy cars. Uh, I've never hmm. been really a car guy. I always said, like, if, if all of a sudden, you know, I won a lottery and I had all the money I could, you know, even think about having, you know, what would I look to get in a car? And I would go for comfort and luxury before I'd go for sporty. That's just me personally. <laughs> uh, and then something happened at one point. My car was in the shop for something and they had to give me a rental for a couple of days. And they gave me a Dodge Charger. And I, I'm, driving, I'm, I'm driving it around and I'm enjoying it. I'm, you know, I'm enjoying this car. It was great. And, but it was, I was totally oblivious to what it was until I pulled up at my sister's house one day and my niece says to me, Uncle Paul, what are you doing with a muscle car? <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, I have a muscle car? <laughs> you're, you're, you've arrived. Yeah. I, I, had, I had no car. clue. I arrived and I, I didn't even know I was there. Yeah, because uh, it, it's a shame what happens to the Mustang. 
as we get into the sequels, yes. but I'll let you discover that for yourself. Okay. I can only imagine. <laughs> uh, also, the only other thing, obviously, we've talked about the, the thematic, in, this is him letting his grief go, because at the beginning of the movie, he's clearly as a death wish. Almost, almost and reminded I think that's me why... in a little bit of, of Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon. Yeah, there is a little bit of Martin Riggs to him at the beginning. I'm not entirely convinced he's got over that by the end, but he's probably getting there. I like, I like that he gets another dog as well. Yeah, oh, I thought that was the perfect uh, note to end it on. But the thing about mm. it is, you know, clearly, you know, again, we don't get a lot of backstory, but clearly when he, I, I, I got the impression he got out of the business, then he met the love of his life, as opposed to beating the love of his life and then wanting to get out of the business. I don't know if I have that right, but my impression See, was uh, he, he, that he really wanted to get out of the business. He finally did, but then she was what humanized him after that. Mm. And then See, my she, interpretation was he went for that job, the job that nobody could do to Vigo to get out of it for her. I get the impression she didn't entirely know what he did for a living. That's possible. It's all very th- possible. Yeah. But clearly, and again, that's to me, why we don't need it spelling out. Yeah, no, no, we don't need it. But I do like to be able to to look at it and say, "Oh, there's levels here to, that you could speculate yeah. as to what it is." Um, it seemed clear to me that you know, once he was out, he was very happy to be out, and we almost get the Al Pacino. Every time I think I'm out, I get pulled back in. Uh, yeah. But at the by, same time, you kept he, everything. He is pulled in, but then the question is, like, when he gets the dog at the end, is he now? If this movie hadn't been a hit and we didn't get John Wick 2, is he back out? Is he back where he was at the beginning of the movie before he met Alfie Allen? I think had it not been successful, they wouldn't have done that. The the implication is that he's back out of the business. Now, because it has been inordinately successful, and I think each sequel has gone on to make more as it's gone along. So John Wick 4 is in post-production, I think. So they've actually plotted from two. They've they've got a a, a story arc going, mm. but it, it's very much like Back to the Future and Star Wars in many respects. The first one really stands on its own, and it's only in the subsequent sequels they've they've come up with other ideas to be able to take this on and on and on. I don't know how long he plans on doing them for, but he certainly doesn't seem to want to stop doing them. So well, we're probably at some point, at some get, point I know, will watch the second one, and then I'm gonna call on you to talk about that one with me okay but i, I don't want to spoil ahead too one. much because i do plan on seeing the subsequent movies because if nothing else i enjoyed this one enough to continue watching the second one is it's not as good because it's not got the shock of the new but it's just as good if you know what i mean there's 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 not a lot in it well, I think what I would anticipate or what I would hope for out of it, I, I, I understand what you're saying, that there's not the shock of the new. But what I would hope for is give him some kind of motivation and then let's continue from where we left off. Yeah, but that's what they do. And Batwoman's in it, Ruby Rose is in it, and Lawrence Fishburne's in it. So you like seeing the Matrix reunited. Hmm. Well, I'll look forward to seeing that. But in the meanwhile, where do we rate this one? We know it's not a Jaws 4 or 5. Oh, God, no. <laughs> um, do I get to go first? You get to okay. go first. 
I get to go first. Uh, if you could write a film for me, this would be it. The only thing it's missing is he's not on a spaceship. <laughs> it's It's got the taciturn hero who doesn't really want to be here, the reluctant hero. It's got the cars. It's got the action. It's got shot loads of backstory. It's just smart enough while still being full of chop socky fun. I, I think it's, it is the jaws of action movies. That's yeah, well, you said to you it, it beats out Die Hard. I can't give it that high of a rating, quite frankly. Um, I do think when I put it on the when, – when the barometer I use is how successful is it at achieving what it sets out to achieve, I don't think you could do much better than you did with this. So on that, from that perspective, it's Jaws. Because there's, there's no area, you know, we talked, I, I picked some nits on it, but there's no area where this movie really lets you down. Uh, to some extent, one of my criteria personally is rewatchability. And while I don't think I'd have a problem sitting down and watching this again, it's not one of these ones where it's so, uh, so dark and, and depressing that I'm going to, you know, shy away from it. It's also dark enough that I think I need I need like to, to cleanse my palate for a while before I would get back to it again. Uh, I also think if your sensibilities are a little bit more sensitive, it's probably not for you uh, because it's very very violent and you know a dog gets killed. <laughs> you know I mean yeah that, the, I. Our our good friend J. David Wheater refuses to watch it for that reason, and I respect that. Jaws Jaws is the only movie where they killed off a dog, and for some reason I can I, I, I can overcome it in my mind. Usually, usually the filmmakers will not have the dog die in a scene like that because no, they know that, they I, know that it's going to hurt them with the audience. And I think that that kind of sub lets off the rest of the violence in the movie because once they've killed the dog, you're like, no, he deserves everything he's got coming to him. Yes. I'm sorry, but it he does. justifies <laughs> it justifies everything. It justifies you, everything John Wick does. Yeah. You know, you 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 kill Mother Teresa, people will forgive you. You kill a dog or a baby or a child, they're not going to forgive you so quickly. You know, that's very true. It's, this, this, it's assault on movies, precinct thirteen again, isn't it? I've seen, I've seen movies. Yes, I've seen movies where you know you have this person, you say, oh, they're irredeemable because they killed so and so, or they did such and such, and then by the end of the movie, people are like, oh, I feel bad for them, <laughs> you know, or or even TV series. I mean, how just to you know to talk about Breaking Bad for two seconds, how many things did people forgive Walter White for doing before they finally said, you know what, this character has to die. You know, yeah, before they realized he's actually the bad guy. Yes, exactly. Or Tony Soprano or, you know, any anybody uh, who's the focus, you know, of the show and that they're going to give you a reason to have sympathy for them. Uh, but once you, you know, you kill a small animal or a small child, I, I, I don't think people are going to forgive it. I certainly wouldn't. But then Alfie Allen has already, you know, earned my ire on Game of Thrones anyway. Uh, <laughs> so... Ultimately, for me, for me, I'm going to say this is a very high Jaws 2. I'm not going to quite give it a Jaws, but I'm tempted to. And I'm looking forward to seeing John Wick 2. Mm. I hope I don't let you down with my rating, Andy. 
No, no, that that's perfectly acceptable. So thanks for coming on, and thanks. For, right. Thanks for getting me to watch this movie finally. Finally, I've only been telling you to do it for three years. <laughs> well, we got around to it though. Eventually, so. yes. So that'll be it for this week's show. Thank you, Andy, for coming on. Thank you, everybody, for listening. No problem. And we will see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. It's not what you did, son, that angers me so. It's who you did it to. Who? The f nobody? That nobody is John Wick. was an associate of ours. We called him Baba Yaga. The boogeyman? Well, John wasn't exactly the boogeyman. He was the one you sent to kill the f boogeyman. Oh, John is a man of focus. Three men in a bar with a pencil. With a pencil. And suddenly one day he asked to leave. It's over a woman, of course. John will come for you. 